All right, First Samuel chapter 24, if you'll join me there. You know, two verses kind of come to my mind as we uh, particularly look at, at chapter 24 here. One of them being this, uh, that Paul writing uh, in the New Testament says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, those are the sons of God. That one of the marks of a child of God, someone who's in right relationship with the Lord, is that they are someone who is led by the Spirit of God. That is, they're not led by other influences, whether it's the impulses of their own flesh and their humanity, their emotions, their thoughts, uh, the opinions of other people, those kind of things. And I think that's a very important verse because David manifests that in this chapter. You'll see here uh, a situation arises where David allows himself to be led by the Spirit of God wisely rather than being led by his own feelings or thoughts or his own reasoning capacities. Uh, or even honestly for that sake as well even opportunities that are set before him uh, another verse that comes to my mind is proverbs 16:32 where there it says he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city and we'll see how that verse is a very fitting commentary on this passage as well because there's an opportunity where david could have let anger have the best of him he could have responded in anger very justifiably from what we know about the situation and the background of the situation that existed in david's life and saul and so forth and yet the bible says the one who is slow to anger and the one who can rule their own spirit the one who's slow to anger and who has rule over their own spirit the bible says is better than someone that has great strength or has the capacity to conquer a city very interesting than he who takes the city. The idea is the Bible's saying it, it is more difficult to conquer your own spirit humanly than it is to conquer an entire city. That, that it, it, it's actually easier to conquer a city than it is for a person sometimes to have self-control, to exercise restraint over their own human spirit because so many times we are governed by our impulses and desires and feelings and the pressures that come upon us and the opinions and thoughts and ideas sown into our minds by other people and David demonstrates that here David rules his own spirit very well and demonstrates really a great uh, example of what that proverb teaches and I want you to notice as we go through this as well keep in mind this uh, concept that just because there's an opportunity before us that looks like maybe an open door does not always mean that that is the leading of God or an opportunity that we should step into. And just because people around us may say, well, I mean, that's so evident. How could you not? I mean, that's an opportunity of a lifetime. Why would you not capitalize on it? Listen, there may be opportunities and open doors, but it does not always indicate just a circumstantial opportunity that that is the leading of God. And it's very important as God's people that we learn that. Because there will always be lots of opportunities and open doors at times that are set before us in our life. And sometimes it's God opening the door. But there are other times where opportunities are just opportunities. And they're not necessarily God's opportunities or God's open doors. And so we have to be careful and be sensitive to what the Spirit is leading us to do in different situations. Again, as we come to chapter 24, the last verse of chapter 23, let's look at it again, tells us, Then David went up from there and dwelt 
in the strongholds of Engedi. So again, at this time, remember, Saul is a relentless enemy of David. David's living in exile. He's living like a fugitive over like a 10-year time period here at this point in 1 Samuel. Saul is constantly hunting him. He's made multiple attempts to try to assassinate David prior to this time. And Saul is just a relentless enemy chasing David through the wilderness, through, through areas all around southern Judah. He just recently has pulled off of one of his expeditions because of something that happened with the Philistines and David was able to escape. But we're going to see once again, Saul's going to relentlessly start to pursue him again. Now, the Bible tells us in chapter 23 at the end of it that David is now in the strongholds of En Gedi. Now, uh, En Gedi, if you ever uh, get to go to Israel or if you've done any research and looked at the land or whatever, is really a unique place. It's near the Dead Sea. And that area there around the Dead Sea, a lot of it is really just a huge, desolate wilderness. I mean, it's barren. It's dry. There's, there, there's no uh, life there in a lot of ways. And yet right there in this huge desolate wilderness, sort of to the western area of the Dead Sea, is this place called En Gedi. And En Gedi is basically, no other way to describe it other than like an oasis. I mean, it's this beautiful, vibrant oasis right in the middle of this dry area with nothing but rocky hills and caves where it's desert-like. And right in the middle of that is this beautiful oasis in Getty that has waterfalls and, and, and fresh springs and there's green life and there's animals all around, plant life. So uh, again, there's still a bunch of caves in this area and we'll see. It's still a rocky area where there are caves. So when you add those things together, you have caves for dwelling places, you have waterfalls and fresh springs and fresh water and green vegetation. It really is an incredible place to provide not only shelter and shade from the sun, fresh drinking water, vegetation, but therefore, because of all those dynamics, it becomes a wonderful place to set up a base of operations. So it makes total sense, David being in the situation he is with about 600 individuals on the run constantly from being pursued by Saul trying to stay alive at every turn this was a great base of operations where they had fresh water vegetation uh, there's different animals in that area and, and so they could from that area have what they needed and send out scouts at times to keep track of what was going on well chapter 24 tells us it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines remember we saw at the end of chapter 23 that he was pulled away because the Philistines invaded the land again. So he now returns from that. It was told him, verse 1, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul is given intel, if you would, on David's location and on the spot where he and his men have kind of established a hideout and a base of operations there in En Gedi. And this intel now comes to him. So verse 2 says Saul then took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and again, notice, he's back on the hunt, went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Now, again, remember, David has 600 men and the 600 men that were David with David, remember we saw them there in the cave of Adullam, the Bible says those who were drawn to David were those who were in debt, in distress, 
and discontented. So uh, not exactly what you would say, hey, this is a great army to start out with here. <laughs> uh, David has these individuals with him. Saul now is going to seek out David. He comes after David and you can tell the intensity of his anger and his hatred and his venomous attitude towards wanting to destroy David. It says that he now assembles it says 3,000 chosen men from Israel. The idea of chosen men there indicates like these were elite fighting soldiers, trained and armed. Maybe you might say the, you know, the special forces type guys, the Green Berets. And he assembles 3,000 of them with him to go and seek out David at this spot where he's gotten intel that David is at there in En Gedi. And look what happens. This is a, quite an interesting and somewhat humorous story at the same time. It says, verse 3, when he came to the sheepfolds by the road, and as I said, this would be a great area for those who raised sheep and, and tended them and had flocks, and Getty was a great location because you could go into the caves there, you could find shelter from the sun, uh, a place to lodge, the shepherds could, there was fresh water in that area. So he comes now to this area, and it says, verse 3, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. Now, that's the Bible's way of being very honest but tactful of saying nature was calling. Uh, he went in to attend to his needs, and David and his men were staying inside the recesses of that very cave that King Saul, lo and behold, happened to go into to attend to his needs. Now, I want you to notice just, again, the sovereignty of God in the midst of all these everyday circumstances and what's going on. Here is Saul. I mean, this guy is out of control. He has got a white knuckle grip on the throne, even though God at this time has rejected him from being the king. He's doing everything he can to resist what God's ultimately going to do and God's will of dethroning him. And he is living evil and rebellious. I mean, he has caused hurt and harm to David, to his own family. I mean, he is just really erratic in his decisions at this time, totally living in rebellion to God. And yet, God is still completely in control in the whole situation. And we see that really from what's happening here. And in everyday circumstances, to the most mundane, practical affairs of everyday life, like taking care of attending to your needs and relieving yourself when you need to use the restroom. And that's basically what Saul is doing here. God orchestrates what happens. Keep in mind, the timing of all these things. Here's David and his men. There are multiple caves all throughout the area of En Gedi. This one particular cave happens to be the cave where David and his men kind of used as their hideout. And from there, they would, like as I said, send out scouts to keep track because they knew Saul was always pursuing them all the time. So, lo and behold, here there are David's men in this cave. Some scouts probably, I'm going to try and paint the picture here for you, probably saw in advance these 3,000 men coming towards the area of En Gedi in the caves. And they probably went back and reported to David. And like anyone would typically do, they're outnumbered, they're outmanned, they know the situation, they, they know the drill, this has happened before. So they sort of retreat into the cave. They take hiding in the, the dark recesses of the particular cave they're in. They say, look, hey, you know, boss, you know, half mile out or, you know, 500 yards out, he, Saul's troops. So they take shelter in this one particular cave, taking a defensive position. And then lo and behold, God, who controls everything, at the exact timing 
allows Saul to begin to experience, hmm, I think nature's calling, gentlemen. We need, to, we need to stop here and pause for the moment. And of all the caves he could have gone in to have a little privacy, to attend to his needs, to relieve himself, he now goes in to the exact cave where David and his men are hiding at. And, and again, keep in mind, as he goes into this cave at this point in time, you know, men aren't like women. They don't bring a group when they go to the restroom. So he, his mentality is, look, you guys stay outside. He doesn't want company at this point in time, whether he's the king of Israel or not. He doesn't want company. He wants a little privacy. He's in the most vulnerable condition possible. He's attending to his needs to relieve himself all alone and he happens to just, lo and behold, go into the very cave where David and all of his men are at and be there in the dark in the most vulnerable condition possible at that moment. And I have to imagine, here's David and his men. They're sitting there. They're aware they're coming through. Maybe they start to see them marching through the, the territory. They realize they're coming nearby. And then here they are. And all of a sudden, they notice someone is coming. Or maybe even they heard the dialogue. And they realize, are, are, are you kidding me? K King Saul's? He's coming, in, he's coming in here to do that? He, he's coming into the very cave where we're at? And remember, when you go into a, a cave, if you've ever been out in bright sunlight, and then you go into a dark area quickly, or you know, if you were in a bright room like this and we just killed the lights real fast, when you're in a bright light and then you go into very dark, your eyes at first take a little while to adjust, right? You, you can't see that clearly. But if you're already in the dark and your eyes have adjusted, you can see a lot more sharply. So David and his men can see very well. Saul's eyes wouldn't be able to see very clearly. And no doubt they're, they're hiding in the cave at this time. Uh, and here God has caused all these things to come to pass, this very interesting occasion. And the question becomes, why though? Why would God cause this occasion to come to pass? And this is what we see beginning to happen. We probably would be much like David's men. Verse 4, then the men of David, they, they see this all unfold. And they said to David, this is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. So David arose, it says, and secretly cut off, not his head, a corner of his robe. And you have to wonder at this point how unusual this was for David and his men. Again, remembering, putting yourself into their sandals and whole situation, all they've been dealing with, all the grief and the struggle and the frustration and moving from spot to spot and just escaping by the you know skin of their teeth on occasion, not getting attacked, not getting killed by Saul and his men. And David now has Saul come to the very cave and his men right away, from their perspective, they think, oh my goodness. I mean, this is obvious what's going on here. Look at this opportunity. The very God himself who told you you'd be the king of Israel and they say, this day, the Lord who has said to you, I'm going to deliver your enemies into your hand that you may do as seems good to you. Now, we don't have any record of God saying that to David. Whether God did give some promise to David in regards to one day you'll be on the throne and I'll deliver all of your enemies, maybe meaning the Philistines and so forth into your hand and you'll be able to defeat them. We don't have any perfect validation, but they automatically just assume very clearly, well, this, I mean, God's just, 
He put him on a silver platter. Here's your enemy, David. And God just put him on a silver platter and just put him right into your hand. It's very obvious what you need to do. Go over there and lop that guy's head off. And if, if for some reason you miss, there's 600 of us right behind you here. You can end all of our problems and fix everything today. And I'm sure they were longing for that, understandably. They were tired and weary and sick and tired of the frustrating circumstances that King Saul had caused them. I mean, how much misery had Saul brought to David? I mean, Saul had uh, you know, basically ruined David's marriage. He had forced David out of his job. He forced him to flee from his comfort zone. And every, I mean, Saul just disrupted his entire life, treated him horribly. And now his men are having to experience him. So here's David, and what does he find? He finds himself faced with an incredible temptation. Would you agree? An incredible temptation to take matters into his own hands. As Saul is right there in the very cave right in front of him, and he has his weapon drawn, and you want to talk about temptation, he has the promise of God in his heart. He knows that he's the next king of Israel. He knows everything that Saul is doing is totally wrong, and God's going to remove him one day anyway. He has the assurance of these things, and his heart has been suffering unjustly at the hands of Saul. And I assure you, if he is anything like you and I, his natural feelings and thoughts must have been persuading him very strongly. I'm sure he was wrestling in his mind and in his heart with thinking, oh my goodness, is this finally the day that this can be over? That I don't have to deal with this grief anymore and the hardship. And I can imagine his humanity justifying and rationalizing the matter logically to, to some ways we might say, I mean, I mean, quite frankly, isn't it kind of at this point self-defense for David? How many times has Saul tried to assassinate the guy? And he's an innocent man. The logical mind could just say, this is just self-defense. I mean, this is just getting rid of my enemy. He's attacked me multiple times. This is totally justified. And then on top of that, I mean, David's tired. He's weary. He's worn out with dealing with all the grief he's had to. He's been hurt and disappointed to multiple degrees and I imagine his feelings and thoughts must have been causing such a temptation to want to just deal with this situation in his flesh and to eliminate the situation that it would seem very justified and then add on to that as you see in verse 4 here the pressure of those among him suggesting that he should do it and it just seems like not only logical but look what they say again this is the day which the Lord has said to you they're basically this is God man this is an open door. Can't you see what God is offering you the opportunity to do to get out of this situation? God's given you the open door. God's orchestrated these things. They're speaking in a spiritual way, indicating, uh, again, God served him up on a silver platter. David, how could, how could you ignore what God's doing here? And again, as I said before, looking at the circumstances, would you agree? I mean, be very realistic. It really would feel like and in every way look like, I mean, this is, this is an opportunity from God here. I mean, this is an occasion to just deal with the problem, to resolve the situation, and to be able to move forward with no more hassle and headache. And here's an incredible what looks like opportunity, and his men are encouraging him. 
And we find David here exercising wisdom instead. Something happened as he began walking over or maybe crawling over to the area where Saul was because it says he arose and something happened between their suggestion and the conversation and the whispers that went on and David getting up and by the time he gets over to where Saul is at, that God gets a hold of his heart and instead of David cutting off his head and killing him, he just nicks and cuts off a little tiny piece of his robe and, and, and no doubt probably brings that back to his men. And I imagine as he comes back to his men, at first they're thinking, wow, David, you are good. We didn't even hear him squeal. I mean, you, you killed him so effectively, his men didn't even hear about it. And, and then David says, well, actually and then he holds up a little piece of of his robe and i imagine his men are thinking what you cut off his robe and and what david did in essence by cutting off his robe was clearly just removing a piece of that royal robe to just show saul how close he really was to indicate what he could have done had he chosen to do it, that he was that close, close enough that he was able to cut off a little piece of his robe. Here's what I want you to see. What does David do? He refrains from taking revenge. He refrains from taking revenge and doing what would feel best for him, what would satisfy himself in the situation and in the moment, despite the feelings and ideas and suggestions and the way it looked on paper, David conquers, listen, David conquers the greater enemy in his life. It wasn't Saul. He conquers the greater enemy in his life. It's not Saul. It's called self. He conquers himself. He conquers his own self-interest, his own selfish nature. He conquers self-control. And let me tell you, man, that is the biggest enemy in all of our lives. Self-control. In fact, we can't have self-control, I don't believe personally, to the degree we should, unless we have the help and the work of God's Spirit going on in our lives. Part of the fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says, is, is, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and then at the end, many always forget, it says self-control. Self-control. As the Spirit of God rules over us and we're led and controlled by the Spirit of God, we're able to subdue the human spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit and have self-control. And that is the greatest victory David has right there. He exercises victory over his human spirit and instead allows God to govern his heart in this way. He only cuts off the corner of his robe to validate what he, what he could have done and how close he was. But look at verse 5. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Look at this. Notice how sensitive David's conscience is. I mean, here's an individual who has such a tender conscience, such a sensitive conscience toward what is right before God. He feels convicted for just cutting a small piece of Saul's robe. He feels conviction before God that what he did crossed the line. This shows the depth of David's character and his love for the Lord that he was sensitive 
not only to a great degree, but sensitive even to the very small things in life. In this small little area, he felt conviction before God and he felt like, you know what? I, I don't feel conviction because I, I, you know, I went and cut his head off. I feel conviction that he is the anointed king of Israel and the Lord is the one who initially anointed him and gave him that position and he holds an office as the king of Israel which our God gave to him. And so therefore David feels like, you know what? That was dishonoring of me to cut his royal robe to do anything in retaliation or revenge or to, to harm him in any way, David feels convicted because he feels like that's not my business. That's God's prerogative. He's God's problem. He's not my problem ultimately. And David feels a conviction even for the smallest slight, if you would, just for the smallest thing. His, his conscience is sensitive to what's right before God. But let me tell you something. This is wonderful. It shows you David's love for the Lord and his strong compulsion to always want to honor God and do what's right. That even in the small things, David was sensitive. But I'll tell you something. If your conscience is sensitive, even in the small things, that's a critical matter because that will help your conscience to be all the more sensitive, ultra-sensitive in the big things of life. A lot of times people are, you know, well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean I'm, I'm, I wouldn't murder somebody. I mean, yeah, I'm sensitive enough. I would, I stopped myself before I swung the sword down on his neck. Well, I mean, that, that's good. I would hope that our conscience is sensitive enough to not murder someone or, I mean, do something traumatic. But is our conscience sensitive in the small things? The small matters of life, the, the things that seem trivial or maybe insignificant. Like, What's the big deal? It's just a thought or it's just an attitude. But, but see, it's being sensitive in those small things that matters to the Lord. And David here has this tender conscience and he shows, would you agree, incredible mercy. You want to talk about a picture of mercy in the Bible, a picture of graciousness to someone who has severely done this guy wrong. I mean, Saul is the epitome of of someone who treats an individual horrible. Saul has done cruel, malicious, hurtful things to David, ruined his life, turned his world upside down. And what does David do? He shows mercy upon him. He's gracious to him. He refrains, even feels bad about the slightest thing of cutting his robe here. And again, isn't this much like Jesus? What a picture of Jesus here. That he shows mercy to someone completely undeserving. And David respected, as I said, what God established. That's why he says there, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing. He's the Lord's anointed. To stretch out my hand against him is to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And he says, the Lord has given him that office. The Lord has given him that role. And if the Lord wants to remove him, that's the Lord's business to do that. And I, even if I can't respect the individual, he's, in essence, he's saying, I, I should show respect for what God has established in the office. And David knew what was right and best and should happen and would happen that Saul would be dethroned and he would be the next king. But please notice in the text here, David would not bring it to pass himself. And boy, that's a hard test to pass for us as people. Because sometimes we know what God's going to do or maybe we know what we can see what's right and wrong very clearly. And, and, and the temptation in those moments is sometimes when we know what's right and we can see what the solution is and maybe we even know where it ultimately should go, we, we struggle with the temptation of, of getting involved and trying to bring it to pass ourselves, and kind of hastening the process along. 
Well, I know what's going to happen, so I'm just going to fulfill the promise and get the show on the road here. And, and we want to bring about God's work or hasten the process to fulfill our desire because it would make it better for us if we can experience what we want to experience sooner. David believes and trusts God and he believed that it was God's job to remove Saul. And he just had a thorough conviction in his heart. Look, that is God's responsibility to deal with this situation. I can see what God's desire is. I even know what God's will is, but I'm not God. He's God. And he is more than able in the same way he established something to remove something, to deal with someone. And he understood the value of waiting for the Lord to work. And boy, that is such a critical lesson for us in our spiritual lives. Not just waiting on the Lord, listen, but learning how to wait for the Lord. Oh, we're waiting on the Lord. But sometimes we don't wait for the Lord. We got to wait for the Lord. Let God do what he wants to do in his way and in his time. Don't take matters into your own hands and start trying to force it to come to pass. It would ultimately come to pass. David could have tried to hasten the process along here, but David said, I'm not going to try and force God's work. I'm not going to try and hasten it in the flesh. And that hands-off approach, I'll tell you this, his hands-off approach does two things. One, it eliminated David wrestling in his conscience later on. Because if David would have took matters into his own hands and tried to bring it to pass, he would have always wrestled with his conscience the rest of his life, wondering, was that really God or did I make that happen? And he would have always had that, but, but with the hands-off approach and letting God do it, his conscience is clear. If it happens, God did it. It was God. My, I took my hands off. And in the same way, it would validate to everyone else involved in the situation that there was no need to ever question David because ultimately God will remove Saul. God will deal strongly with Saul and God will put Saul to death ultimately. And then nobody had to question David. David's conscience would be clear and his reputation would be more sterling in regards to the situation that he didn't do it for his own purposes, but that God sovereignly removed Saul and then lifted Dave up and David up into the better future that he had for him. So verse seven says, David therefore not only restrained himself, but it says he restrained his servants with these words and did not notice the word did not allow them to rise against Saul and as a good leader he had to restrain him because I'm sure David's servants are saying look if you don't want to do it we'll be glad to take care of it for you it don't have to be on your on your conscience because what happened to David affected them and I'm sure his men natural uh, instincts again would say look David if you don't want to do it then let one of us do it any of us will gladly go over there and make a pincushion out of the guy. And, and it says that he restrained his servants from doing this by speaking truth in their lives. His example and the way that he dealt with this, he guided them both by personal example and what he spoke and taught to them. And that's important. You know, Sometimes these decisions, these situations exist and go on. And it's always sometimes not only just about us. It may be about the people who are around us who are looking to us and maybe in some way people we have an influence on, all those men were directed properly because of David's example. David's example, David's choices spoke volumes and, and he encouraged the others, listen, you do what's right. His leadership helped direct others into doing what was right and how to honor the Lord in their lives as well. And often we can be used to do the same. So at that point, verse seven, Saul got up, it says, from the cave and he went on his way, never knowing what happened in the dark. And David also arose afterwards. Watch this verse eight. He went out of the cave and he called to Saul saying, 
my lord the king. I'm surprised I'm saying, you lucky scoundrel. You know, <laughs> you fool. I mean, my look at the respect again. My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David, again, look at this, stooped down with his face to the earth and bowed down. So David shows what? Tremendous humility before Saul still. He shows incredible trust in God. Uh, what's, think about what he's doing here. He cuts off the corner of his robe. Saul leaves. Saul's men can't be that far off. He's got 3,000 men. David's men were safely in the cave. They know no, nothing has happened. And what does David do? He goes outside and he yells out and he bows down to the ground. And what's he do? He exposes himself. He makes himself totally vulnerable at this point to where Saul and the men that are with him are aware that he's there and his men are with him. But what does this show again? Look at the incredible humility in David. Still walking in humility. He's not arrogant or trying to, again, you know, pour out venom on Saul. I mean, he is not reciprocating back the, the things that Saul were doing towards him. He's, again, continuing to be courteous and kind. He refers to him as the king. He bows down to the earth. In verse 9, he then said to him, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm. Apparently, this was being fed to Saul and his in his men around him that David was out with evil intention and that he had wrong motives and was just trying to take the throne away. And he says, why are you listening to the lies that are going on around you? You're taking bad counsel, he's saying. Look, this day, verse 10, your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into the, my hand in the cave and someone urged me <laughs> to kill you. How about 600 men? urged me to kill you he says there but my eyes spared you i chose to show restraint rather than take out revenge though it was right in my power to do it and i said i will not stretch out my hand against my lord for he is the lord's anointed moreover my father again not only is he his king but he says remember i'm your son-in-law here my father he says i married your daughter remember see Yes, see the corner of your robe. And I imagine this must have shocked Saul when he saw that at that point. He says, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. And I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. So notice what David does. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't take revenge out on him. He doesn't kill him or execute him or take matters into his own hands. That being said, he exercises humility, but yet he's also speaking honestly. Because what's he doing here? He's confronting Saul. And he's confronting Saul in his ear. He says, Saul, why are you listening to the lies of everybody? People who are telling you wrong things that I'm you know, out to take your throne and that I have evil intention and I'm seeking to harm you. Why are you listening to lies, he says. And then, as he holds up the garment that he cut off, the piece of the robe, he lets his actions speak for and validate what was true of his character and his intentions. He says, look, don't you I could have killed you, Saul. Is this not proof enough that if I meant harm to you, I could have cut your head off. This is a piece of your robe. As he looked back in the robe, oh my goodness, here I was vulnerable and alone and, I, and this guy didn't kill me. So what's David doing? Again, he's still confronting the error and he's confronting the issue between them relationally. He's speaking honestly. 
And he's speaking into his life saying, listen, you got a wrong perspective and you're misunderstanding me in the situation and there's just honest communication. Verse 12, he goes on to say, let the Lord judge between me and you and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. I'm not going to take matters into my own hand, he says. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. The idea is that a, a, a person's conduct reveals their character. The wicked person does wicked things. Remember, Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. A good tree can't bring forth bad fruit. A bad tree can't bring forth good fruit. The fruit always reveals what the inner nature of the tree is. So David says, look, if I was wicked, I would have just done what was wicked to you. So he says, can't you see my hand? He says, verse 13, a second time, my hand shall not be against you. Again, David refused to take matters into his own hand. He wants Saul to see that he restrained from doing that and that he didn't resolve the problem. He trusted God to do what's right. You know, this reminds us of Romans chapter 12, where Paul speaks of this from a New Testament perspective. Let me read you Paul's words there in regards to how to deal with hurts and mistreatment and offenses because these things do happen people do hurtful harmful evil things to us in this life paul says in romans 12 to the believer who's to live on a higher plane by the power of the spirit of god he says this romans 12 repay no one evil for evil have regard for good things in the sight of all men and if it is possible as much as depends upon you Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, listen, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it's written, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So see, the Bible tells us to use restraint to not return or retaliate evil for evil or hurt for hurt. And, and it says that this is something that sets us apart because we know as children of God that God will repay. God will make things right. And so therefore, we don't need to take matters into our own hands. We don't need to retaliate. It says rather give place to wrath. That is give God room to address things. Give God room to defend you. Give God room to deal with the situation. And instead, if anything, he says, proactively, we're to take initiative by doing something shocking. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If they're thirsty, give him a drink. The idea is that you show kindness to the person who least deserves it. And it's like putting coals of fire on their head. It just, it, it almost just baffles them. Why are you being so nice to me? Why are you doing this? And it perplexes them because you're overcoming their evil with good, the Bible says. And here David is a fitting picture of this. He then says, verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue, he says. He says, I'm a dead dog. <laughs> David sees himself as, as just a limp dead dog, a flea. The idea is David saying, who am I? I'm nobody. I, I don't think I'm anyone important, he says. I'm no more valuable than a dead dog. There's not much value to a dead dog. He says, I'm, I'm like a, the flea on a dead dog. Therefore, let the Lord be judge, he says, between you and me, and see and plead my case and deliver me out of my hand. May the Lord deliver me, he says, out of what's going on. I trust him to do that. And so it was, verse 16, 
when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul now, and here's the longest running quote of Saul we have in the Bible. Saul then says in response, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Now, I don't know if those tears were sincere, uh, but he lifted up his voice and wept. He certainly felt convicted, realizing what happened. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done for me this day. So Saul recognizes conviction comes over his conscience. And I think justifiably so. And he realizes, I mean, you had one of your enemies right in the palm of your own hand and you chose to show mercy rather than to take out your vengeance or justifiably kill me or put me. He says, this breaks total military protocol. This is irrational the way you've behaved. And he says, you're definitely a way more righteous man than me and, and may God reward you for what you've done in his presence. He then says, verse 20, and now I know, interesting, look what Saul says, I know indeed that you shall surely be king. In other words, God's gonna justify your cause, David, because you're the one that's right and I'm the one that's wrong. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Isn't it interesting? Even his own enemy is prophetically speaking true of what was going to happen in David's life. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul. So Saul says, David, I realize you're going to be the king of Israel. And he says, I'm begging you. Because again, customary protocol, when you became a new king, you executed all the sons of anyone who was a part of the descendants of the prior throne so that there was no attempt to revolt or reclaim the throne. So he says, please, I'm begging you for mercy. Swear to me that when you arrive to the throne and you surely become king, that you won't cut off my descendants after me. Now remember, David had already made that promise to Jonathan. But Saul here, he's just pleading for mercy with David and David assures him that he wouldn't do that. And then verse 22 concludes saying, and Saul went home, but David and his men, notice, interesting, went up to the stronghold. Interesting. If things were resolved, why doesn't David go back home too? Why does David go back to the stronghold? Well, because David had enough wisdom and discernment, merciful, loving, gracious, kind as he was, he was wise enough to realize that that he would not instantly believe Saul was sincere and going to follow through with what he said. Did Saul's words sound very repentant? Absolutely. Did he have the tears running down his face? Oh, I'm... Absolutely. But David also realized that repentance is not something measured by words, it's measured by ongoing actions. And in a matter of a chapter, all these tears and the repentant attitude is going to go right out the window and Saul is going to be right back after David trying to assassinate him again. So David wisely recognized, despite all this God speak and all the crocodile tears, he realized it takes time to demonstrate sincerity. And so David went back to the stronghold in wisdom as a way of keeping himself in a place of good stewardship.